he has pastored to me. Uh, you can hear it good. Uh, as many of you know, uh, I have one brother, one sibling, uh, his name is Seth. He's about seven, seven years older than him. And uh, we actually, our church supports him. He's been working with Campus Outreach for almost 25 years now. He works for Campus Outreach at the University of Alabama, University of Alabama, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss, those schools there. He's a great evangelist, and uh, he and I are very close. Actually, I love it when he comes to visit because everyone asks who's older for his children. I'm almost a decade older than him. But anyway, in our life, I can think of two arguments, uh, major arguments that he and I have. All right? Here's the first one. It was on the 17th Green at Twin Pines Country Club. Uh, our club that I grew up on, our parents would meet him and my dad were playing in a, in a tournament. It's a notorious green, it has a steep slope in it, it's tricky. And in that tournament, we were vying, I thought probably to do well in it. And uh, we made a read on a putt, and I said it went left, and he said it went right. And even after we putted it, he was convinced it went one way. Which actually went left, by the way. And uh, but we almost got in a fight. I mean, we were arguing. We were grown. About, I think I was married. He wasn't married yet. And my dad was embarrassed. And we were we argued over the read of that putt. To this day, if we play the 17th hole, we'll always ask, "Does this go left or right?" Uh, on every time we see each other. And so we even took that back home and argued. And my mom was like, "You boys have got to stop it." Okay. So that was last week. No, it wasn't. That's when we were young. I told you that we were. We were. Uh, I think I was in my early 30s, maybe late 20s. Huge argument. Uh, the other, the other uh, conflict that he and I had um, was um, uh, over a serious, dangerous doctrine. That's And um, uh, there's a denomination that's in my area that has a very, very, where I grew up in Northwest Alabama, has a very, very large presence. Uh, and uh, so much so that there was a seminary there and a high school with a particular denomination. And uh, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but actually it was one that was started out of the Second Great Awakening here in Kentucky. And uh, just to protect you so you don't worry about that this morning. But here's what the teaching was, and it was very prominent within our area. Uh, first, that baptism, the actual act of baptism, was necessary for salvation as the water itself actually cleansed you and made you clean. Not Jesus' blood, but the water itself. Uh, secondly, um, Jesus, so in order to be saved and only be cleansed, the water you have to have the water applied to you. Secondly, was that uh, salvation was Jesus plus baptism plus works. And so it wasn't just Jesus alone, but you also had to earn your way. It depended upon your own works, whether or not you would make it. And then also the belief among that denomination was that they were the only true church. There was no other church other than them. And so the baptism had to take place in them. Now, this was a serious, it was a, I think it was a sect of this particular denomination. It was pretty rampant in my area, but very, very militant in the sense. I had num numbers of friends um, who were um, abandoned by their families if they ever left this denomination. To this day, I can name a couple of those guys who are leading large PTA uh, churches and still have no fellowship with their families. So, difficult. And um, so my brother had just come to faith. He was young. He had actually attended a Kim Savage Christmas conference, heard Randy Pope speak. If you know that name, it was in the PCA, and uh, he had come to faith. And he was, um, at this point, still dating a young woman who was uh, famous as an astrologist. So, um, I knew that wasn't a good thing. I've been a Christian now for a while, had studied, had been taking some seminary at that point as well, and um, so 
families and friends among, I was raised to support, I was working with James Savage, to encourage them, hey, this family's different, you should feel free to talk to them, and even raise money, and against my better judgment, I, I decided, okay, my brother's friend of the famous uh, family that my brother was dating, um, the, that I would ask them. So I made a phone call uh, to, the, to the father, and uh, he answered the phone and told him what I was about to do, and in so many words, he basically said, um, I'm sorry, but we don't give outside of our denomination. We don't believe that would be the true work of Christ. It would be a part of the ministry. And, and begin to uh, unpack some other things he'd prefer I do. He said, basically said, no way. So <laughs> it, it got a little heated on the phone. He kind of put me in my place. I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't believe that, whatever. And it, but it took place. Well, what I didn't know was that as I was making that phone call, my brother was at the dinner table with that family. And uh, later, my parents came to me that evening, and I didn't know that was happening. They said, you've lost your brother. Uh, you really upset. Now, um, the stakes were high, and uh, I expressed my concern um, because I thought that seeing the pattern locally that he would abandon us. And I had great concern about the doctrine, which we should. Well, You know the story ends well, though, right? So, my brother is, is fine. I'll save that for the end. But what we're dealing with this morning is, um, it's a part, it's, it's a warning. This, this passage, this unique part passage where Paul speaking to Timothy is a warning about quarreling over uh, false doctrines and addressing false teachers. As a matter of fact, he mentions two of the names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. So that stings for your name to be recorded in the scriptures for all of life, to be a, uh, a heretic, right? But it's a heavy passage in that sense, and it's a warning. And up until this point, Paul's been pretty positive about something, but at least calling him to fellowship and suffering. But he's giving him some commands, and here we are this morning. So what we'll look at, it's a rich passage in many ways. I hope we heed the warning and, and get clarity here. But we'll look at three things in the outline. There are three A's you'll see within the passage actually forward, but we're going to look at all four of those, or three of those A's. We're going to look at avoid, uh, what he calls him to avoid, and what does it mean to be approved and not ashamed, and then lastly, to apart, or to be set apart, is how Paul does it. When it relates to, um, when it comes to this warning, this is kind of what Paul, uh, this warning against false teachers and the false doctors, this is kind of Paul's answer for Timothy. So, let's pray. Father, would you, um, let us be warned this morning and heed the advice of, uh, that Paul gives to Timothy. Would you let that resonate in our hearts? Would you let us feel the, um, the what seemingly the weight that was felt by, um, by Paul and his language and concern here? Would you let us heed the commands and apply them, figure out what does it mean, what does this look like for us as Grace Christian Church, as believers in the 2022? And would you also exalt Christ, the one who is faithful and true, and remind us of that, of our firm foundation we have in him. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. 
All right, so the idea of avoid, that's the first point here. And you see there in verse 14, as it looks, it says, remind them, Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. Now he's telling him, he's reminding him of some truth he's just given him about the gospel, I think, in verses 8 through 13. But he's reminded him, and at this point, it's been kind of positive. He said, be strong in the grace, train faithful men, and remember these truths about the gospel. But this transition, after remind, then he goes to this word charge, and now he's kind of speaking from the negative, the idea, which is pretty normal, right? Here's what you should do, and here's what you should avoid and not do. The scriptures seem to do that a lot. So, uh, so now the negative kind of connotation comes, and notice what it is. Uh, it's not to, there in verse 14, not to uh, quarrel about words and see where we get to avoid in verse 16, but avoid irrelevant babble. So the idea is to move away from it, not get near to it, and, uh, and it's, uh, uh, to avoid it. So now the real question as you look at the passage, which I've kind of already given this answer away, but when you see things like irreverent babble or um, um, quarreling about words, we can, I don't have time to get into all the specifics of that, but here's the general answer to that. When you read this passage, you may say, well, this talking about slander and gossip and just arguing, which would have been what my brother and I did on the 17th hole. Or they're talking about a serious doctrine, false teachers, and this is this is what it's talking about: false doctrines or false teachers. That's what this is one is particularly addressing. And you'll see that in verse 18, where it says they swerve from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Listen, nobody really knows what the heresy was. We just know how Aeneas was teaching it, and uh, Philodemus had joined him in that. There's some history that tells us a little bit. I'll tell you about it later about Hymenaeus. But we don't really know what that is. But here it does say that the resurrection had already happened. It could have been a number of things. <laughs> some believe that, uh, that, that there would be no resurrection of the body. That Jesus said that, that this idea of just that the body uh, only would be resurrected in the spirit. That could have been one of them. It could have been the idea that you were, uh, some thought that your life would be resurrected or live only in your children. That was a heresy going on. There was no, that that's how it would be resurrected, that you had an offspring. Uh, and then some kind of this Gnostic view of, um, a view again that it was just a spiritual um, resurrection one day that God's people would have. But, but we have a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus has a new body, and he touched the new fed, and he actually ate bread. And so the gospel is not just renewal of Satan spiritually, but one day we're going to do heaven, a new physical place that's here on earth, and a new body that's renewal of physical as well. Don't know. But it was a big deal. And how do we know it was a big deal? Well, whatever it was, it was very threatening. And the passage that kind of lends itself to that. First, notice there the word charge. The very first, he says, remind is the first command, but then he says charge. And that word charge is a very, very heavy word uh, in the Greek. And it, it really has, um, uh, sometimes people translate, translate it, other translations say solemnly charge, that it's more than just charge. So, so here the idea of a serious, got weight to it word. He says charge them. But notice where he tells them to charge them. Charge them where? Before God. So the idea then is he takes him before God. Now, if you were to look up this phrase, which I tried to do a little bit, but I, the phrase uh, charge them before God or in the presence of God, what sometimes is translated, translated, a large percentage of those things in the presence of God are negative throughout the scriptures. Uh, some of the Psalms, the idea of coming in the presence of God is a scary thing, a reverent a reverent thing that would be kind of scary. But some of them are coming to the presence of God that are positive, that to enter in his gates with thanksgiving. So, but most in that, I think contextually here is a little bit heavy. It's like there's some seriousness to what I'm about to tell you. But do it in the presence of God. So there's a weight in it. It's like, this is a, um, <laughs> this is big boy issues, if you will. 
but bring it before God. In the presence of God, charge them. And what does it tell them to charge? The other way we see it's a big deal is that look at the language. Look at the language that's around it. Notice that it says, if you quarrel, it tells them to charge them not to quarrel about words and avoid, avoid irreverent, irreverent babble. But it says it does no good in verse 14. And then it says it ruins the hearers. Ruins their lives. Uh, leads people into more and more ungodliness in verse 16. It spreads like gangrene. Which is uh, a very, very destructive infection. A bacteria that gets in and, and can overtake a, a body very, very quickly. And then also upsetting the faith of some in verse 18. So even the language, do you feel the weight of that? Like, it's serious language that he's using. So he says to for them to avoid this. Now, um, at least in, in this point, you're probably, I guess, so what difference should this make in your life? Um, well, I think like most in the Bible studies this week, we did ask the question, in the two studies I lead, they asked the question, so how do you know what to quarrel about and what not to quarrel about? And what are things worth uh, discussing or, and what should you quarrel about? So here's an idea, here's one way we looked at it this week, and I'll offer this to you. Maybe this would be helpful just in general to think about, um, about things in the church and discussing issues that might be, um, that might be sensitive uh, in your life or what. And you'll see this, this is the way I think about things. You'll notice the, uh, these concentric circles. And the first one is, is that there are a lot, a lot of things that you can just discuss. And you need to determine, is this, this particular doctrine or this issue with a person, is this something worth just discussing? We, 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 we can talk about this. We may differ, but that's okay. But the next level, a little bit inside that, would be debate. Is this a topic that maybe we should debate? And the, is this uh, something that I'm willing to debate? Would it be worth the debate? But again, not forfeiting the friendship or the relationship. And then there are some things, of the faith particularly, that maybe we need to defend. And um, that, you know, this is an important doctrine that I will defend it. If you want to come at it, then I'll kind of stand up and talk about it. That's a little bit more serious than debate or discuss. Um, I think a debate and discuss, at least kind of at a light level, defend, okay, I'll, I'll, you're getting at some of the core beliefs that I think are important. Uh, but then the last one there, you'll see die. And so what are the doctrines of the truths that we're willing to die for? In history, you may think, well, let me give you a list of some of those. Uh, the deity of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ in the kingdom? Every doctrine worth dying for. Those have, just, have died for actually justification by faith alone. That Jesus' atoning work alone, his blood alone, can justify and atone for our sins, not water or our works. People died for those. The deity of God and his nature. The virgin birth, by the way. An incredible doctrine for our faith. Because the God-man was he born miraculously of God. And so even throughout history, there's been debates and councils and creeds, and actually we have those because of the debates around the serious doctrines. But I think this is probably helpful just to think about, is this something worth discussing? So let me just ask uh, the take. So I'll give you the example that I already used around the idea of baptism. Um, if you want to debate or debate or discuss the mode of baptism, whether you should be fully immersed, like our Baptist brothers say, or many of our brothers here, or whether you should be sprinkled, uh, or watched it, that's what, that's a bit worth discussing, and we might confidently debate that, but that's what it is. That's where that lands on me, mode or water, how do you apply it? 
has to be water, the mode. But what moves? Now, if you want to say that water actually regenerates your heart, then now it's moved towards the middle. Do you see that? That's a different discussion. Now we're attacking the atoning work of Christ. So, this is probably a helpful way to think about things in our lives. But what Paul, what I think Paul has arrived at, and this is interesting, is that he's not, you're thinking, it sounds like he's saying, well, stop babbling and don't fight with them. It's not worth it. But it's an important doctrine. Here's what I think has happened, uh, is that he's been debating Hymenaeus for a while. Hymenaeus has actually left the church and started a church nearby. This is a false doctrine, and he's kind of like saying, we've said our piece, it's time to move on. Don't be drawn into their endless discussions about words and what they should be. And Paul is saying it's time, because that clearly is a, uh, a, a non, a, that is clearly a, a heresy. And let's move on. Don't be drawn into that. Don't, worthless, don't, don't be drawn into those worthless debates. They have kind of decided where they are. It's kind of meaningless to try to persuade them about otherwise. Well, from there, <coughs> you see, um, that's kind of what I think he means by avoid. And um, it's interesting because it does lead to um, the ruining of people's faiths. I actually don't think he's talking about people who have faith. I think it's a weak kind of faith. That, and they're, they're kind of led astray, and they want that they're led astray by someone here. And it ruins people who don't have a saving faith. But it, it, that false doctrine is pulling people in and destroying them. That's what he's saying. He's saying stay away from that. I will say this. Uh, in the later years, around this particular doctrine that my brother and I, were, uh, that I was concerned for with him, uh, it was a works righteousness, and it produced really two ways of ungodliness. It either produced, and by the way, at the University of North Alabama, Kim Sarich began to have to do training for their staff to understand this place of how to address the particular doctrine. It was so rampant in the area. But it produced one or two things. What you encounter, I know, in college students who had grown up with this particular denomination was it was an unbelievable self-righteousness that we were the better church and everyone else were imbeciles. Self-righteous, that's heinous, right? That's anonymous. But also the opposite is true. That the kids would say, no, I can't ever be good enough. What is good enough for God to finally accept me one day? And you know what they would do when they got to college? They're like, they hate with the Christian life, and they'd be the hardest partiers I've ever met. Because they now think knew that I can't ever be good enough to be accepted by God. And so it perpetuated their anonymous. Next, and so they avoid, but then it moves into, Paul says, verse 15, we're looking at that, this idea of being approved. And so this is, verse is sandwiched right in between it. So how do you deal with these false teachers? Well, notice what Paul does. He says, do your best. So that word there, that phrase, do your best, really doesn't mean that. It's a zeal. He said, give your best effort to something else. All right, he's transitioning that. And he says, present yourself. Now notice what he says, present yourself to God. And this is that present yourself I was talking about earlier, where this, this is kind of a, this can be kind of, this, you should feel away of this, present yourself for so God. So notice that, the debate, quit worrying about the people and all this and how amazing you get drawn to the people. Take yourself and he turns and say, get before God. Do yourself to get before God. Now, do yourself to be a, try to be a workman of the word of truth. Be a workman and present yourself approved before God. Someone who would not need to be ashamed because it puts you before the Lord. Now, here is um, 
Calvin said this, he said, Indeed, there is nothing that tends to more check a foolish eagerness for display than to reflect that we have to deal with God. And what he was saying was that when you get drawn into those debates, kind of self kind of gets wrapped up in it, and you kind of want to win. And you kind of want to, it becomes about you, about winning. And he's like, nothing kind of corrects all the motives and frees you up when you move yourself and think only about God. And he also said, I think people fear being wrong or desire to want to win. But turning to God puts you in the right place. So he tells them to turn to God when these come. Instead, be putting yourself before God. Now, let me just give you one application there that will, I think will benefit you in all of your life. I, it's one that I try to apply from this particular principle. When you study the scriptures, if you can have the posture to say, God, I don't care what truth is. I know you're truth, and you are truth, and you reveal truth. I don't care what the truth is. I just want to know. That ought to be your posture. I want to know what the truth is. I'm not sure. And by the way, if there's not some things in this that you struggle with, then you've got a God of your own making. There will be some things that will be difficult about God's truth. Otherwise, you just make God, you know, you things that are kind of difficult or you're rough, you're like, I don't know if I like that. That's, I've struggled with that particular idea of what God, but that's a good thing. Because the point is for us to submit to Him. And I will say, when this particular doctrine, I took many years that I was telling you there was a struggle with my brother. And I had entered into so many debates with people about it that I actually had to say, all right, Lord, if they're right, I will become one of them. If that's all right, let God deal with this. There's some wisdom in how to study to do that. But that, that in a sense, is what he's telling him to do. And, um, and so I know as we looked at it this week, there was a feeling among the Bible says, at least among the men, we're like, oh no, this feels like a work salvation. Like, like God's only going to love us if we're good workers of his word. Okay? I don't think that's what it is. This is what we would call a sanctification verse, not a salvation verse. All right? Our salvation is secure and given to us by God. But a sanctification is how we relate to God and how we walk with him. And we are sinners and we do mess up and how we obey matters. And so what, what he's doing is he's saying when it comes to the word of God or the idea of the word of truth, what he actually uses here, he says, do yourself be a workman. Work hard at this. Think of it this way. This is the best way to illustrate something. We'll give this one a try this morning, right? But think of a child who has good parents, great parents, right? And um, when they live in this particular home, mom's been out of town for a while, or dad, doesn't matter. Let's say mom's been out of town for a while, and she's coming back. And the children know uh, that their mom's one ask was that her only thing was that they're terrible at keeping the room clean and their house clean. But the one ask was they know it blesses her, her whenever she... Uh, Whenever she, the house is clean and they have things put up. That's just one way to show her love. All right? And uh, let's say it's her birthday while she's gone. Say so they want to give her a clean house when she comes home, right? Well, then she comes home. What if they forgot? What if they didn't do that? What if they get home and the house is terrible? You ever done that, by the way? But what if they get home and the house is terrible? Well, the reality is those kids are still the children of those parents of that mom. They're standing to not be king. But they should have an house plan. And the commands of God, well, the reason they wanted to do it, if they didn't do it, was because they loved their mom. On their mom's birthday, they wanted to celebrate. And so anytime God is calling us to obedience, 
Our relationship with God is based upon the love relationship, not to earn his favor, but because of his favor. But here, you can't be ashamed if you don't put the effort you should. Meaning, if you're not motivated by the love of God in a way that makes you want to handle the word of God and present yourself a proof, you can be ashamed. Guess what? Sin? Sin makes you feel like you don't feel that God doesn't love you. He does. His love never changes. But what sin does is it disrupts the experience of God's love. And so it is with the Lord. This works. That's what he's telling them to do. Do yourself to present. And by the way, it's anchored because he reminds remember there was a salvation before this, just before verses 8 through 13. He said, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And remember, uh, and remember that, that you are the offspring of David. That you've, all these things you have by God's grace, and Jesus has risen for you. And, they, and that the elect will all be saved or secure. And even if the gospel is bound, even if your sin uh, is a word of God, even if you're in chains like I am, the word will still go forth. So he's already anchored in just before this. He says, because of that anchor, do yourself best to present yourself before God. That's all of our call in many, in many ways. And he calls him to notice that, that he um, is around handling the Bible. Now, it's probably that word of truth there is, a, is the actual spoken word of truth. It's not, uh, they don't have the full canon of scripture yet. So the idea of this is words of Babylon. So Timothy would have the Old Testament, and all you have is the teaching of the apostles. So he's telling them, think, do a bit of proof work, or do great work to think about how to say well who God is and what he is. Do you feel the weight of that? Do your best. Don't be ashamed to do that. Now, that's a call to a pastor, by the way. Notice as elders and pastors came out, we should feel the weight in an extra, extra weight this morning. But guess what? Pastors are an example to the flock. This will be to the whole congregation. Well, do your best to present yourself approved by God. So notice so the, there's all this thing going on around you. Don't be drawn into that. Get before God. Have a posture that I'm before God and in his presence. And be worthy. I'm worth it. That's what he's calling him to do. Rightly handling the word of truth. That rightly handle would have meant to straight cut. It's a word that would have been used to talk about cutting something straight. If a board is being cut straight or cutting a path through the woods or through a mountain or something, it's the idea of cutting it straight. Think about the straight truth of who Jesus is and what he is. Right. Then lastly, we come to the part, the last A, that was the approved. Um, the idea, the verse, the last thing you get to verse 19, but notice, but, so in the midst of all this, even though these guys are sur- swerving from the truth in verse 18, this feels like good grief. And he's really hurt behind the names, and these guys can hurt us. He says, but, remember this, there is a firm foundation, God's firm foundation stands. It may feel like everything's going over an edge, but it's not. Why? Because we're on a firm foundation. And it's God's set foundation. And notice he says, uh, there it is, it buried this seal. Now that seal, the language of the seal meant ownership. So what he's about to say is, God has a firm foundation and there's ownership that he has. If he owns it, then it's secure. It's his. It's precious to him. So it's standing firm. So he transitions, but God's foundation is firm. And notice what he says. He says, the Lord knows who are his. So the Lord will sort it out. That's what, that's what happened. The Lord will sort it out. And in this particular debate that I mentioned that I had before, I really began to learn that the idea I had my brother had to address, but I didn't want to enter into any more debates with that. The Lord will sort it out. 
Maybe I'm there. I don't know it. It seems like that's a bad doctrine. But the Lord's foundation is firm. And I can come over his presence and try to resubmit myself to him. And he knows who's or who's. He knows it. He's clear on that. And as Jesus, when Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and I know them. So he knows. But then the second part there, he says, um, he says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from this iniquity, from iniquity. So here's basically what it's saying. The Lord knows, from God's perspective, God knows everything. From our perspective, from man's perspective, we'll know it by what they profess and if they get away from iniquity. That's how we see it. God knows he is. Those who believe in him and trust in him, guess what? God didn't just save you to save you. He actually saved, he set you apart, made you holy in a sense that you're his precious, but he actually saves people to be holy. Part of salvation of him saving people is to save them, to make them holy and change them. And so he says, listen, all those who set themselves apart, set their hope on him, will be, will be, um, will be his, you'll know. So that makes sense. He's like, God's got this. He'll sort it out. He knows who it is, his. And all those who profess his name, they'll run from iniquity. That's what you'll see. And they'll run from it. So you do the same. So lastly, we get to this verse 20 and 21. And um, he does this, this illustration of um, it's now in a great house, there's not vessels. And you see this idea of vessels, good vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use. And in verse 21, he says, Therefore, anyone cleanse himself from what is dishonorable. So he's saying again what we just said about being an approved workman. Is he's saying, cleanse yourself because God has made you clean. Cleanse yourself of the uncleanliness in your life. Make the effort to do that. When someone is wrapped up in sin, and that's a trend of their struggle, at that moment, they are in a sense, a dishonorable vessel. They're not word, they're not, they can't be used, or God seems to withhold his using of them. Right? Think about Mark. Paul at one point with Mark said, listen, Mark's arrogant, and he doesn't need to be with us and be working alongside of us. But then later Mark repents, and Mark joins him in the journey that is working. If I as your pastor were to have a trend and a pattern of normal, heinous things going on in my life, it would need to pause and say, hey, Shane's a step away from this particular work, what he's doing. Why? Because he's of dishonorable use right now. He needs to cleanse himself because he had been made clean by Christ. And so it's a very high call that he tells him to do, to cleanse yourself and make yourself ready for every good work. This is appropriate for us with a five-year vision ahead of us. Grace Church, we need to cleanse ourselves. Why? Because he's cleansed us Ultimately in Christ, but we ought to cleanse ourselves that we might be a church of honorable use for his work and for his life. Well, avoid, proved, and set apart. What's interesting is, as you'll notice in verse 19, there were quotes. And um, these quotes are um, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting Numbers 16. He's actually quoting Moses. And those exact words there, those two phrases he used, Timothy would have known. Timothy would have said, oh, this is a big deal. 
And in number 16, we have what we call the sons of Korah, a guy by the name of Korah and two of his buddies. Basically rebelled. They were Levites, and they wanted to be priests. Levites weren't priests like Aaron. But the sons of Korah and about 250 leaders and men rebelled against Moses, and they rebelled against Aaron. And they basically said, we are just like you. You should, your office and God is along this. That's kind of a, a rebellion day. You know what Moses says? Mo, it breaks Moses' heart, it looks like in the scriptures. And he falls down his face as soon as they say this to him. And he goes before the Lord. And you know what he ends up telling him? God tells him to do. The next day, God says, have those 250 men and those three men, the sons of Korah, to gather among God's people and tell them two things. And guess what he told them to tell them? It's right here. He said, the Lord will sort it out if you're right or wrong. And the next one was, the next obedience was, he warned anybody associated with Korah or that group of 250 men, you need to move away from them tomorrow and look at them. Don't be close to them. Because the next day, when the 250 men brought the incense, that Moses said, God will show, the ground opened up and swallowed them and got right into it. And they died before everyone's eyes. And Moses would have heard, and Timothy would have thought, oh my word, this is a big deal. But he also would have thought, but God will deal with everything. God will sort it out, just like he did in the desert. Purify yourself. May I finish with this hopeful thought? By the time we get over to Numbers 26, there's a verse 11 that says, in that particular passage, someone, Moses, was repeating what happened earlier. And in verse 11 of the vineyard, it says, but not all the sons of Korah some of the family of Korah knew that what their family and their leader was teaching was wrong and on that day some of the sons of Korah moved away they ran from the iniquity and they moved over to the rest of the congregation and guess who they became you ever read your psalms a song by the sons of Korah. Their descendants became the worship leaders in the people. They became vessels of noble and honorable use. <laughs> if you've ever read Psalm 46, that's a song of Korah. And we sing about it today. It says, Be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted throughout. I think they were still that night, and they knew to be for it, because guess what the first verses of Psalm 46 say? That though the mountains fall into the sea, and though the oceans rage with foam, most think that the sons of Korah were thinking about their ancestors, who were absorbed. And they said, one of the greatest things we could ever do and continue to do is be still and put ourselves before God. And they begin to celebrate the grace to be separated. finish with my brother. Over the next few months, I've prayed for his soul. Don't hear the power of my prayer. Hear the mercy of God. As he continued to worship and go to that church with that family. And over time, he began to hear things and say, there's no way that's true. I'm reading the Bible. That's not what it says. And one day he separated. 
from the sons of Korah, so that he might become a remnant. What a mercy to God. He had encountered God, and he separated <coughs> himself from those things that were irrelevant. Let's pray. God, as we come and sing here to you in close, would you let us um, let us be warned, um, and let us let us um, but also be thankful. Let us be warned to not go into false doctrines and to stay away from those that are that are bad. But Lord, help us as a church, help us as a leadership, not to do those things. But in the same way, God, help us. Give us the strength to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And remember that we're the offspring of David. And give us the strength in that to present ourselves as approved workmen of your word, to handle the word of truth well, and to separate ourselves from the iniquities that, that so easily bestow us. Right now, there's rampant iniquities within our hearts and minds. And we need your help to set ourselves apart so that we might be honorable vessels. Not vessels thrown to the side, but those that are cleansed because of your great love that fights sin. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ. Amen.